can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to be looking at Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20 this morning. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. Have you ever looked up before the penalty for lying under oath? What we call, or what is called perjury? I find it interesting sometimes how we weigh different penalties for breaking different laws. Here's how perjury is defined in South Dakota law. Any person who, having taken an oath to testify, declare, depose, or certify truly before any competent tribunal, officer, or person who states intentionally and contrary to the oath any material matter which the person knows to be false is guilty of perjury. And and the penalty for perjury, for lying under oath, the penalty depends on on the context in which the perjury takes takes place. So if it's in any just general context where uh, it's prohibited by law. It, it falls under a class six felony. The penalty for that is two years in prison and $4,000 in fines. But if it's in the context of any trial, court proceeding, deposition, or administrative proceeding conducted under oath, then it's a class five felony where the penalty is up to five years of imprisonment and $10,000 in fines. But if it takes place in the context of a trial, that is a trial for a felony, if you lie under oath in that context, it's a class three felony where the penalty is up to 15 years in prison and $30,000 in fines. The reason, the reason lying under oath is so serious is, is because it, it distorts justice for others. So that the, the result is, is, of, is one of at least two uh, very bad things. E- either someone, if you lie under oath, either someone can end up being penalized wrongly for something they did not do. That's a terrible thing. Or the consequence could be someone not being penalized rightly for something that they did do. This morning, one of the things we're going to be thinking about are oaths. So keep that in mind as we look at here verses verses 13 through 20 of Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. 
We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Father, in a world of constant flux and change, both outside of us and even inside of us often, Father, we ask for help now to listen to your unchanging word and to rest in your promises. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage this morning comes at the end of a long break or uh, parentheses in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Throughout Hebrews chapters 1 through 4, uh, we see that Jesus is superior to angels and he's a superior revelation from God, God revealing himself to us. We also find in those first four chapters that Jesus is a, he's superior to Moses, this Old Testament leader, very significant Old Testament leader, and that Jesus leads his people to a superior promised land. And at the end of Hebrews chapter 4, the author begins to discuss Jesus as a superior high priest compared to the high priest of the Old Testament. And in the middle of chapter 5, he introduces the idea that Jesus does not belong to the order of the Levitical priesthood. Jesus belongs to a different order of priests. He, he belongs to the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek. But the author pauses at this point in the middle of chapter 5, and and he criticizes the recipients of this letter, and he criticizes them for their spiritual immaturity. Uh, Before going on about this Melchizedek figure and Jesus' connection to him, he laments that these Christians need milk, that they can't handle solid food, the solid food that they Need And from there, he goes on to warn them very sternly in, in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. And about eight weeks ago, we looked at the high stakes and the danger of having a false profession of faith in those verses, 4 through 8. And, and then after that stern, stern warning, he goes on to offer them some comfort in verses 9 through 12. He tells them that he feels sure of better things for them uh, in, in spite of that, that warning. And in verse 12, you see that his desire for them is that they would not be sluggish in their faith, but that they would be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So our text this morning, verses 13 through 20, in in a lot of ways, uh, is just the final part of the author's pause here in his his argument in the book of of Hebrews, before moving back to discussing Melchizedek. The the author is, is like a skilled and caring pastor here who begins by criticizing his readers. He begins by bringing up a problem with them in chapter 5, verse 11, through the beginning of chapter 6. And then he warns them in verses 4 through 8, and he's began to comfort them in chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. And now, in some ways, uh, this morning, this whole sermon is the conclusion to the warning that we looked at eight weeks ago here in verses 13 through 
20. So this morning we're going to look at how the author of Hebrews ends this, this particular rebuke in the book of Hebrews and, and this warning for these Christians and, and how he gives them reasons for hope, how he gives them reasons why they can persevere in their faith. And he does this by pointing to three things. These are the three things we're going to look at this morning. He points to the example of Abraham. He points to the character of God. And third, he points to the nature of Christian hope. So let's look first here, verses 13, 14, and 15, and the example we have in Abraham. And In verse 13, he brings up Abraham as someone to imitate, looking back to verse 12, right? Where he, the author wants us to imitate those who inherit the promises through faith and patience. Notice the connection here. The, the word promise occurs again here in verses 13 and 15. Uh, the, the word patiently waited coming up here again in verse 15. The, the promises God made to Abraham are, are significant, and, and those promises begin. The first place we see those promises is in Genesis chapter 12. And, and these promises God makes to Abraham, they're not isolated to him. They're they're critically significant uh, for the whole story of redemption, the whole biblical storyline. These promises to Abraham, they stretch back to the Garden of Eden and the fall of humanity and God's plan to redeem humanity from the curse of sin and death. And they don't just point back, they also point forward. They, they stretch forward to the person and work of Christ in the New Testament. God promises Abraham three things. And if you have sat in my high school Old Testament class here at any point in the last nine years, you better know what the three things God promised Abraham are. God promised Abraham land. He promised him offspring. And he promised Abraham blessing for all the families of the earth. Land, offspring, and blessing. And these promises are reiterated again, not just not just in Genesis 12, we find them again in Genesis 13 after Abraham and Lot separate. Lot goes east and Abraham goes west. They're reiterated once again in Genesis 15 after Abraham rescues Lot and Abraham has this run-in with this interesting figure named Melchizedek in chapter 14. They're, they're reiterated once again yet in Genesis 17 after Sarai convinces Abram to obtain a son by her Egyptian servant Hagar. Those promises are reiterated again in 17. And through all this, Abraham is waiting for God to fulfill his promise to him. And, and even as you recognize that, if you know Abraham's story, you might cock your eyebrow just a little bit when you read how the author of Hebrews describes Abraham in verse 15 here. Look at verse 15. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Did Abraham wait patiently? Really? Abraham has numerous lapses of judgment in Genesis, just his story in, in Genesis 12 through 25. He allows his wife, Sarai, to be taken into Pharaoh's harem. Uh, keep in mind, Sarai has a pretty, cool, pretty critical role to play in uh, Abraham becoming the father of a multitude of nations. Uh, Abraham struggles with uh, doubts and questions God's promises at times. Uh, he takes the advice of his wife again and then seeks to obtain this child through different means by her servant. Uh, it's hard to see that as exactly waiting patiently. I'm not sure that that's how I describe those actions. 
He allows Sarah to be taken again as a wife or a concubine, in this case with Abimelech in Gerar. Abraham is not perfect in his patient waiting for God's promises, but let that be let that be an encouragement. Despite numerous failures and doubts, despite the fact that Abraham needs encouragement again and again, reassurance from God again and again, Abraham is described overall as waiting patiently. Can you relate to Abraham? It's almost as if Abraham's faith grows over time. He, he travels to Canaan at age 75, and, and Isaac isn't born for at least 25 years late after that, I mean, that's, that's a long time to wait, a quarter century at least he waits. And one of the reasons, at least one of the reasons, for the repetition of these promises in Genesis 12, and then again in 13, and then again in 15, and then again in 17, for Abraham, at least personally, this is to encourage him to continue to persevere in trusting God by faith. It's interesting, though, when the author of Hebrews recognizes that Abraham obtained the promises. If you look at verse 15, in this case, the promise, the promise is, is a child. It's a, it's a descendant that will make Abraham the father of multitudes. In this case, the, fa- the, the, the promise the author is referring to in verse 15 is, is Isaac. But according to verse 14, Abraham is not presented as obtaining the promise, until actually, it comes after Isaac's born. So look at verse 14. God swears to Abraham, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. But the author here quotes, quotes Genesis chapter 22 there. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. The problem is Isaac's born in chapter 21. So what happens in Genesis 22? What happens after Isaac's born? Well, in Genesis 22, this is when God tests Abraham by sending him to the land of Moriah to offer his son as a burnt offering. So, so first of all, Abraham waits decades, quarter century, for the son God promised him. And then, even after he's born, Abraham's faith and patience are put to the true test by God at Mount Moriah. And of course, we're familiar with that story. God, God provides a ram at the last second and Abraham obtains the promise. And God reiterates once again in Genesis chapter 22 his broader promises to Abraham that he will surely, multiple, surely bless him and multiply him. It comes after Isaac's born. So, so, so we should be able to relate to Abraham. We should, we should, we should sense some connections here. We should send some connections to someone who is, who is often weak and foolish. Uh, to someone who is often in need of reminders of God's promises. Uh, we don't know what circumstances will come in our lives. We don't know what means God plans to use to grow our faith. We don't know what ways God may choose to test us. It's uncomfortable to think about sometimes. What we do know from Abraham's story is that Abraham obtained what God promised. And even this morning, all of us sitting here, the fact that we are sitting here is evidence of the fact that uh, God did keep his promise to Abraham and is continuing to keep his promise. Back in Hebrews 2.16, the author refers to New Testament believers as the offspring of Abraham. 
So through Christ, Abraham really did bless all the families of the earth. And through Christ, he really did become the father of a multitude of nations. And the author of Hebrews is telling us this morning to imitate Abraham, which, which isn't easy. And once that's what, what would be easier, what might be simpler is, is if all it took to obtain God's promises was to complete some kind of checklist, to, to, to fulfill some list of objective standards. And God does give us tasks. He does give us things to do. He doesn't merely just say sit and wait, but, but it's not tasks alone that lead to the fulfillment of God's promises. Sometimes the hardest parts of the Christian life are the things that you cannot complete on your own, things that require patient waiting. Maybe you're waiting on circumstances to come about. You're, sometimes we're waiting on other people. Sometimes we're just waiting on God, things that we, we, we can't, even any human being could bring about. And sometimes, even after waiting so long, and it finally seems the wait is over, Isaac's born, we, only, we come to find out later that God actually just requires more patience and waiting again. Waiting is not an inactive activity, though. Remember, we're contrasting imitating Abraham's uh, patient waiting in verse 15. We're contrasting that with, with sluggishness and spiritual dullness in verse 12. So, so waiting cannot mean sluggishness. It can't mean lazy. It can't just mean sitting back and doing nothing. Waiting requires actively putting your trust in God, actively reading God's promises, remembering God's promises, meditating on God's promises, patiently waiting for God to fulfill what he has promised to us, like, like Abraham. Abraham is an example of persevering patience for us today. But God provides to us more than just a human example to encourage us to persevere in faith. He also reveals himself as a source. He shows himself, reveals himself as a source for our confidence. So second reason why we can persevere in faith is because of the character of God. Look at verses 16 through 18. In verse, verse 13, we read that God, he makes this promise to Abraham, and, and we read that he actually swears. He swears to Abraham taking an oath. And we find out what an oath is in verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So an oath is, an, is, a, is a promise, but it's more than just a promise. An oath is a, is a promise with this added dynamic uh, of invoking negative consequences for failing to come through on the promises, or failing to come through on your pledge. So in, in the ancient world, uh, if you wanted to add significant weight to your claim or to your testimony or your promise, you might swear in the name of a king uh, or an emperor or swear in the name of your God. And the idea was that if you're lying, uh, if you fail to fulfill your pledge, uh, you invited the wrath of that higher authority on yourself. God actually regulates these types of oaths in the Old Testament. The, the last chapter of Leviticus, chapter 27, is all about vows, which are very similar to oaths. Uh, we read in Deuteronomy 6, 13, uh, God says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. 
But he warns earlier in Leviticus 19, verse 12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. What God says to the Old Testament Israelites is if you're going to swear, don't swear in the name of some lesser deity, some lesser false God. You swear in my name. You recognize that I am the one true God. I am the higher authority who holds men accountable for what they swear. But then he warns them, but do not swear by my name falsely. Do not take it lightly if you're going to swear by my name. And Jesus actually cites Leviticus 19.12 in the Sermon on the Mount when he explains that there, there really should be no reason for you to take an oath, but, but rather everything you say should always be truthful, letting your yes be yes and your no be no. And, t- and today we still have oaths as part of our culture. You think about uh, the oath of office people take for political appointments. You think about uh, the oath to testify again in, in a courtroom. Right, someone puts their hand on the on on a Bible, and and someone asks them, "Do you solemnly swear that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth?" So help you God. And the whole idea with that in in the courtroom setting is that if 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 you give false testimony, and the courtroom finds out, the court finds out, you will be guilty of perjury, and and you will be punished accordingly. But the idea behind that, there's no need to swear on a Bible. Uh, and, and in the name of God, if, if that's all the consequences are, the other aspect of that is if you swear, and the, let's say, and, and then you lie, and the court doesn't find out, well, the, the idea is here is that you'll still be in an even worse position when you stand before God someday. God is a witness to whether what you are saying is truth or lies. And so interesting here in... Uh, as we recount what the author of Hebrews points back to in Genesis, God swears an oath to Abraham. Here's what it says in Genesis 22, 16. God said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Uh, the, the author of Hebrews explains what's happening here in, in chapter 13. Or, excuse me, in verse 13. In verse 13, what he says is God does not have anyone greater to swear by. So, so if God's going to take an oath, it's sort of an awkward situation for God, right? Because, because who is God going to ask to hold him accountable to his word, right? By definition, God is the highest being. Uh, when it comes to God, there is none greater. He, he is the superlative being. He is the perfect being. He is the one who's perfect in power, perfect in love, perfect in wisdom, perfect in purity. So, so if God is going to take an oath, the only one he can swear by would be himself. That's, that's all who's left. And the author of Hebrews tells us why God takes this oath and swears by himself in verse 17, if you look there. He, he doesn't take an oath for his own sake. He takes an oath for Abraham's sake. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God does not need to take an oath. He, he is not obligated to... Uh, take part in in this type of thing. Frankly, it's a waste of time for him. God wants Abraham 
though. He wants to give Abraham more. He wants to show Abraham how serious he really is. But, and even notice there, though, in, in verse 17, it doesn't say that this is for Abraham. It says it's for the heirs of the promise. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, and if you're in Christ this morning, that's, that's you. God uses, God takes this oath to reassure Abraham, but even more than Abraham, he takes this oath to reassure you. That the same language we find in Galatians 3.39, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So in verse 17, we, we see God swore by himself to Abraham so that those who are in Christ would know something, so that you would know something, so that you would know the unchangeable character of his purpose. The unchangeable character of his purpose. When God promises something, purposes something, it does not change. God's purposes don't change because God himself does not change. God is not what you would call mutable. He is not a mutant. Uh, Other gods, the gods of the peoples, they mutate. They change. You can manipulate them. Not this God. This God does not change. Human beings, human beings change. We change all the time. Sinful human beings definitely change. Oaths are necessary in, in a fallen world. Uh, human beings, we, we lie all the time. Uh, human beings have good reason to doubt one another, especially when the stakes get really high. But God, God is different. God never changes. Another one of the keys to persevering in faith is knowing God. What is God like? God himself, just his very being, is a gift to us so that we would persevere in faith. And God is immutable. He doesn't change. His purposes and his promises do not change. God is also truthful. Look at verse 18. He is truthful in which it is impossible for God to lie. We, we like to think about God as being able to do anything, right? He is all-powerful. But, but sometimes the things that God can't do are, are just as important as the things he can do. It is impossible for God to lie. That is wonderfully comforting. When we read verses like John 16, 33, where Jesus says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is not lying when he says that. Or, or oh, maybe what Jesus says in Matthew 28, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Always. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't lie? That is true at every single moment of your life if you are in Christ. He has overcome the world. He is with you. God is truthful. God is eternal. Uh, this, this is just connected to the fact that he's unchangeable, right? If he's unchangeable, he must be uh, eternal. To come into existence is to go through, experience some kind of change. Just the same as to go out of existence would be to experience some kind of change. But if God's unchangeable, he must be eternal. God is gracious. He, he does not owe any of these promises to Abraham. Abraham did nothing to merit God's promises here. God doesn't owe anything to us, for that matter. And an oath, an oath doesn't even make sense for God to make. He can't even swear by anyone 
higher than himself. And yet, verse 17, God desires to show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things, two unchangeable things, both his promise and his oath, those are the two unchangeable things, so that by two unchangeable things, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He does it to give us strong encouragement to persevere in our faith. And this isn't the kind of strong encouragement like I give my kids sometimes, like you better do this uh, or things are going to get nasty, right? It's not that kind of strong encouragement. This is the strong comforting encouragement. This is encouragement that says it's worth it to do this. This is worth the investment. Keep persevering. It's strong encouragement like that. It's strong encouragement to persevere in personal spiritual disciplines. Strong encouragement to persevere in fighting sin. Perseverance in in loving others. Strong encouragement to persevere in obedience. To persevere in the Great Commission. Calling others to repent of their sins and, and come to this unchangeable God whose promises never fail. Because because of the character of God, because of the character of God's promise. This is, this is why we sing things like we sang this morning. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. We need to remember what he is like. In light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. We sing about how we're contrasted with God. We blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree and wither and perish, but not changeth thee. We are in constant state of change. Our lives, it's like our lives are just slipping through our fingers. We can't even grab hold of anything that will just last if we want to. But God, for God, he experiences nothing like that. Never changing. This is who God is, eternal, immutable. Uh, His words, his promises, even the oaths he takes unnecessarily are unchangeable. And and thus the Christian faith is, as, as George Guthrie puts it, the Christian faith, because of that, is infused with hope. It's infused with hope. So third, we turn our attention to verses 19 through 20. These last two verses are describing what Christian hope is like. In, in verse 18, we're told that God is giving a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And in, in verse 19, we're given a picture of what this hope looks like. It looks like an anchor. That's what our hope looks like. It looks like an anchor. When do you use an anchor? You use an anchor when you're concerned about floating away. You use an anchor when you want to stay right where you are. Uh, The author of Hebrews clearly appreciates some of this nautical, boating, sailing language that comes up throughout the letter. We've already seen in Hebrews 2 verse 1, he, he says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Uh, we, we don't just get an anchor. We, we need an anchor. And, and this hope set before us is our anchor. And it is hope that's described in, in three ways there in verses 19 and 20. It's sure or secure. It's sure. It's steadfast. And third, it's heavenly. 
So let's look at those to end this morning, especially that third one. Hope, hope, our hope, the Christian hope is like a secure anchor. It's, it's certain. It's, it's firmly in place. It's, it's sure. It's dependable. It's not going anywhere. That's what Christian hope is. It's also steadfast. Uh, it's abiding. It's, it's constant. Uh, it's, it, it endures. It's, it's going to continue and it's not going to fail. Secure and steadfast. Though storms come, though, though the winds and waves of this unpredictable life batter against us again and again, our hope anchored in God's promises and in God's character himself, it, it holds us steady. And not only is it sure and steadfast, but it's also anchored in a very particular place, a very specific location. It's hope. That's all, this hope's also a heavenly anchor. Many in the past have recognized this unique aspect of this anchor illustration here in the book of Hebrews. Uh, whereas most anchors sink, right? They sink down into the water, into the depths, and hold us secure. This anchor in verse 19 actually rises up through the clouds, following Christ to the very throne room of God. Look at verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf and we become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It, it anchors us. This hope anchors us in the most dangerous, in the most glorious, and yet in the at the same time, amazingly, in the safest place possible. Uh, it, it is the most dangerous place because this is a place we cannot go on our own. Ever since God placed two cherubim outside the Garden of Eden to guard and keep people out, we have been cut off from God's presence. And, and, and there is no more dangerous place for people who have broken God's law than, than in his immediate and manifest presence. The end of verse 19 says that this hope enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The other place in scripture we see this language is in, in Leviticus 16, where God prescribes the instructions for how the tabernacle should func function. So I'll just read this to you quick. Verses 1 and 2 of Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. God goes on in that chapter to describe the Day of Atonement, which is, which is the one day, once a year, when one man can enter into that inner place behind the curtain and come right back out again. None of us belong in that place because we are guilty before God. We, we, live, we live as if this whole world exists for us. As if it's created for us. And that is not why the world that we inhabit exists. It's not why it exists. We, our role 
currently in this world is lawbreakers in God's world. He reserves the right as our creator to tell us why we are, to tell us who we are, to tell us what we are for, to tell us where we belong, to tell us how we ought to live. That is his prerogative as the creator and sustainer of the universe. But we have gone our own way, seemingly usurping his authority, all the while storing up righteous wrath for ourselves on the day of judgment. So if if that is our circumstances, how in the world can we have hope? Our, how, how, can our, how can our hope be anchored in the presence of God and in the inner place behind the curtain when we have no right to be there? In fact, that's basically the furthest place we want to be. We want to be as far away from that place as possible in our current condition. And the answer, of course, is we have a forerunner. That's what it calls Jesus in verse 20. He's our forerunner. We've already seen a similar word to this in Hebrews 2.10. And that's the word founder, or it could also be called first lead, or source, or originator. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So God sent a founder for us. He sent his son, who lived in perfect obedience to God, the Father, who died on the cross for lawbreakers like us, becoming the perfect Savior for us through His suffering. As He absorbed God's wrath for sin, and then when He breathed His last on the cross, the curtain in the temple, embroidered with guardian cherubim, tears in two, signaling to us that there is now a way in. There is now a way in for fallen sinners, law-breaking sinners, who have gone in our own way, thinking all of this is for us and about us, to go into the inner chamber behind the curtain, into the holy of holies, into God's manifest presence. Jesus rose again on the third day and he ascended into heaven. It says in Hebrews 4, 14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, passed through the heavens into the very presence, throne room of God. So now, those who stand before God on their own merits or by, by trusting in some other savior, some other false founder, have no hope. If you stand before God on your own merits, you have no hope. But those who turn away from their sin, who acknowledge their sin and put their trust in Christ, in Jesus, the Son of God, who, verse 20, has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Those people can have forgiveness. You can have forgiveness and you can have this hope described in these verses. This word forerunner is another one of these nautical terms, these boating or sailing terms. And I I really appreciate how Lewis Talbot explains this word. This was quoted by uh, Richard D. Phillips in his his writings on this. But here's what Lewis Talbot says about this word forerunner. The Greek harbors 
were often cut off from the sea by sandbars over which the larger ships they dared not pass till the tide came in. Therefore, a lighter vessel, a forerunner, took the anchor of the larger ship and dropped it in the harbor. From that moment, the ship was safe from the storm, although it had to wait for the tide before it could enter the harbor. The entrance of the small vessel, the forerunner, into the harbor, carrying the ship's anchor, was a pledge that the ship would safely enter the harbor when the tide was full. And because Christ, our forerunner, has entered heaven itself, having torn asunder everything that separates the redeemed sinner from the very presence of God, he himself is the pledge that we, too, shall one day enter the harbor of our souls and the very presence of God in the new Jerusalem. So as we wait for the tide to come in, here is the question you must ask yourself. Where is my anchor? Where is my anchor? To what is my anchor attached? What is it that you are hoping in? Is it something sure and steady and steadfast? Or is it something like your health? Or the particular political situation you would like to see play out? Are you hoping in money? Are you hoping in some sort of getting some kind of attention from another human being or another group of human beings? Where is your anchor? Is it anchored to a sure and steadfast hope, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, following Jesus who has gone before as a forerunner on our behalf? Uh, the, the author of Hebrews gives, gives this stern warning above here in verses 4 through 8 about, about false conversion. Uh, and, and it might be tempting, reading through those verses, uh, it might be tempting to just give yourself to endless despairing introspection uh, after reading a warning like that. Asking questions like, am, am I really a Christian? Uh, is, is my faith truly authentic? And, and there is a time and a place for those types of questions. Those types of questions are not always inappropriate to ask, but, but I think we learn something by how the author follows that warning here in, at the end of chapter 6 of Hebrews. And not only does the warning follow with words of comfort, but he also follows those words with words of confidence here. Confidence derived not from looking at ourselves, but at God. If our hope is anchored in ourselves, we will have endless despair. If our hope is anchored in anything in this world with, with its constant flux and change, we will despair. Our hope needs to be anchored in God. As Robert Murray Machane, who's a well-known Scottish pastor, he's credited for saying, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. The next time you hear someone take an oath, remember that God once took an oath. He took an oath so that the heirs of his promises would not, uh, would not despair, but they would persevere 
in faith. We can persevere in faith because other humans, other fallen humans like us have persevered in faith like Abraham. We can persevere in faith because of the character of God for whom it is impossible to lie. And we can persevere in faith because of the nature of Christian hope, rooted in the character of God, an anchor for the soul, following Jesus, who ultimately grounds our hope, anchors our hope in heaven, where it can never be removed. Let's pray. Father, we cannot live without hope. The world is too full of sorrow and disappointment. It's too full of flux and change and unpredictability. Around every corner there's suffering and death. In every direction there are lies and deceit. But you have not left us without hope. You've given us two unchangeable things. You have promised and you have sworn that there is blessing for those who put their hope in you. And, in, and it is impossible for you to lie. So Father, we rejoice this morning in what you cannot do. For what you cannot do uh, doesn't actually limit you. It only makes you stronger and wiser and more worthy of our praise. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens as our forerunner. The pledge that we will one day make it to the harbor, safely to shore, where we will dwell with you. And until then, Father, by your grace, according to your great mercy, help us anchor our souls in your unchanging character. Help us hold fast to you so that our hope can be anchored in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.